exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're starting in verse 1. While you're turning, let me remind you that John's gospel is oftentimes called the book of signs. Because even though Jesus performs countless miracles while he was on earth, John chose to highlight seven signs that led up to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We've already seen Jesus turn water to wine, and last week we saw Jesus heal an official's son. And even though he was miles away from his son, and today we'll see the third sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But remember what the purpose of a sign is. The purpose of a sign is to point to something else, to point to something greater. And these miracles that Jesus is performing are not just fun facts about Christ and His history, but they're meant to reveal something about Jesus to us. So as you're reading, you should be thinking, what does this sign tell me about Jesus? Before we dive into the text, there is one issue with this text that causes some people to stumble, so I want to talk about it. If you'll look at John chapter 5, you'll, uh, five you'll notice something strange. I want everyone to look for verse 4 in your Bibles. Now, I want to do a quick survey while you're looking for verse 4. How many of you don't have verse 4 in your Bible? There's a good amount of us. In the Pew Bibles, it doesn't have it either. We use the English uh, standard, John 5, 4. Um, That can freak a lot of us out because why on earth does my Bible not have verse 4? Well, let me tell you something. We don't have the original Gospel of John. After a couple hundred years, paper disintegrates. And so we actually don't have any of the original books of the Bible. What we do have is handwritten copies of the original. Thousands upon thousands of copies, actually. We have so many copies, in fact, that the Bible is literally the most reliable ancient document in the world. So what scholars will do is they'll take all the copies together and they'll compare them. And we can tell with a 99.5% accuracy of what the original scriptures say. But if you look at the earliest copies we have of the Gospel of John, verse 4 isn't there. It appears like it was added later, and there's so much of a consensus that almost all modern translations, they just skip over verse 4 because it's very unlikely that it was in the original Gospel. Uh, Most scholars think that there was a scribe who made a note in the margin about verse 3, and the next guy who copied his copy included that and thought it was part of the original gospel of John. So it doesn't even look like someone was trying to change the Bible. It was just a monk who made a mistake. And listen, this is not some liberal belief. We are a Bible, as Bible-believing as they come. When, uh, when God used holy men to write the Bible, the original writings were the literal, inspired word of God without any error. But sometimes monks who copied those writings made mistakes. And I could talk more about this. So if you have more questions... Um, then feel free to come talk to me. But I think the point is we have a reliable scripture. And even if we look at verse 4, it doesn't contradict anything in the text. But just if you're reading, you're like, one, two, three, five. I didn't want it to freak you out. There's a reason. So with that being said, let's pray and then we'll dive into our text. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth and shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The devil is perfectly content with Christians dedicating their lives to good things as long as they're distracted from the greatest thing. 
One time, Jesus and his disciples were traveling and they needed somewhere to stay. And a woman named Martha opened her home and let them stay. Martha had a sister named Mary. And when Jesus came, she sat at his feet listening to everything he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. To the naked eye, Martha seemed like she was being holy, like she was being righteous. She had opened her home. She was serving her guests while her sister was being lazy. She probably expected Jesus to rebuke Mary. Hey, Mary, get in the kitchen. Help your sister. It seems reasonable, but busyness is not the same thing as obedience. Martha was even busying herself with good things, but the problem was that in the process, she missed out on the greatest things. It's easy to fill up your calendar with church stuff. It's hard to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. So we ask ourselves, how do I spend my time? Where have you committed yourself to? Are you dedicated to good things, but in the meantime, missing out on the greatest thing? Religion has a funny way of giving someone the appearance of being righteous without actually being righteous. So how do we go from Martha to Mary? My prayer this morning is that we would be able to make that transition from religious busyness to holy adoration, and that we could value Jesus above all things. Because in John 5, 1 through 15, we find three characteristics of Jesus that will lead us to value Christ above all. The first characteristics of Jesus we'll find is that Jesus is compassionate in verses 1 through 9. Then we'll find Jesus is powerful in verses, oh sorry, not 1 through 9. The first point is 1 through 7. The next point is 8 through 9. We'll find Jesus is powerful there. And then finally, we'll find that Jesus is holy in verses 10 through 15. Jesus is compassionate, powerful, and holy. But let's start with compassionate. Look with me to verses 1 through 3. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Stop there. Jesus once again travels to Jerusalem for another feast, but this time he chooses to stop at the pool of Bethesda. This pool is actually two pools surrounded by five columns. If this room was the pools, then where the pews are, where the two pools would be with one column in every corner. And then there was one column in the very center separating the two pools. This pool was no ordinary pool. The water in the pool came from a reservoir, but it was also likely connected to a natural spring below the ground that would occasionally cause the water to be bubbled up. Because you look down at verse 7. You'll see the paralyzed man saying that the water would be stirred up. And that leads us to why there would be so many people with disabilities at this pool. There was a superstition that an angel would go down into the pool, stir up the water, and heal the first person who stepped into the water after the water began to move. And so there's this large crowd of desperate people who are willing to spend their days waiting by this pool in hopes of a miracle. Why is Jesus here? He didn't come here the last time he was in Jerusalem. We're not sure he ever even returns to this place. But Jesus returns to Jerusalem and he makes a point to go to these desperate, superstitious people. 
He doesn't go there by chance. He didn't wander in. He didn't choose to go there in, uh, by accident. But Jesus does choose to go there because he is compassionate. Why did he stop at the well in Samaria? Because his heart is for the weak and the needy and his heart was set on that Samaritan woman in the town of Sychar. Why did Jesus heal the official's son when the official had no clue and really didn't even care who Jesus was? Because Jesus' heart is compassionate. He healed the man's son because he loved him. And here we see the heart of Jesus again, intentionally heading into the crowd of hopeless people to find one man. And look what happens in verses 5 through 6. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Stop there. Jesus knew exactly who he was looking for. He knew his disability. He knew his life. He knew his sins. And he finds him here and he asks him, do you want to be healed? He doesn't ask because he doesn't know. Anyone with a brain could look at the crowd around him and say, this man wants to be healed. But look what the man says in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. In his response, we see that this man clearly has no idea who is asking him this question. He's still trusting in this superstition for healing. And I think the implication of his response is this. Can you help me into the pool? When the waters start to move, can you throw me in that I may be healed? This man had been disabled for 38 years. And in this time, when the average lifespan was 40 years old, we can only assume that his parents had probably passed away. So he looks to this stranger in despair, saying, I have no family, I have no friends, no acquaintances to help me in the pool. If only someone could help me into the pool. And Jesus knows this man has no clue who he is. He has no faith in Jesus or in Jesus' ability to heal him. But Jesus, with a heart full of compassion, asked him if he wanted to be healed again. But thanks be to God that we have a Savior who is not just compassionate, but he is also powerful. Look with me to verses 8 through 9. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Just like the water and the wine, just like the official son, Jesus does not wave his arms. He doesn't touch anything. He doesn't utter some kind of magical phrase. He doesn't even pray, which would have been expected. By the sheer force of his will, Jesus heals this man. When Jesus wills something to happen, atoms start to rearrange and the laws of physics begin to bend for him. For the God who spoke creation into existence, healing a disabled man is a small thing. 38 years without being able to walk, and instantly he gets up and he's on his way. In the movie The Matrix, a man is told that he has been living his entire life inside of a virtual world. When he's able to escape and he's brought into the real, real world, he's lying on a hospital bed. And he asked the man attending to him, why do my eyes hurt? And the man answers, because you've never used them before. Here, this man has no complaints. He has no struggles. He doesn't have to warm up. He is not slow to pick up his mat. But after 38 years, what does verse 9 say? At once, at once this man was healed. At once he took up his bed and he walked. This is the power of Jesus. 
Jesus' heart was moved to compassion for the man. But compassion without power is not worth much. I know many of us see the suffering in this world and we have this desire to do good and to help, but you get overwhelmed because you are lacking in resources. You're lacking in power. You and I are ultimately powerless. But the God we serve is all-powerful. And if it is His will, it happens. Pastor Richard Blackaby once said, God is under no obligation to make your plan successful, but He will go to enormous lengths to ensure that His will is done. God has an infinite supply of resources and of power. He's not hurting for money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and He will stop at nothing to accomplish His plans. Amen? Amen. Here Jesus displays not only His compassion, but His power. We often just look to Him and ask Him to push us into the waters when we should be asking Him to heal us. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus heals every time He is asked. Remember, there are crowds of hurting and desperate people here, and Jesus only heals one. And most of us will live the rest of our lives with pain and sickness and disabilities and never be healed. Why? Because His plans are better than our plans. His ways are higher than our ways. This man lived 38 years of his life as a disabled man, and every moment of that pain and suffering was leading up to this moment, this instance, where Jesus displays his power. And listen, Jesus knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows your trials. He knows your sins. He is a plan. And for some of us, that may mean a miracle because he is powerful. But I can promise you one thing. For all those in Christ, if you have been saved from the fires of hell and saved for the glories of heaven, there will be no disabilities in heaven. There will be no sickness, no sin, no pain or trial or hurt, but God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that is the promise of eternal life. And on that day, we'll be able to look back at every ounce, every bit of pain in this life. And we'll be able to say that those trials were light and momentary compared to the glory of what we will experience in heaven with God. How is that possible? Because our God is compassionate and our God is powerful. And one day he will restore to the world the way he made it. Good and without sin. Amen. Amen. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. You see, not only is Jesus compassionate, not only is Jesus powerful, but Jesus is also holy. Look back with me to verse 9. At the end of verse 9. John tells us, now that day was the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. If you know anything about the Pharisees in Jesus' day, you know this is going to be a problem. So read on with me in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. About 500 years before this, the Israelites were kicked out of the promised land. And when the Lord kicked them out, one of the main sins that the people had committed, the Lord said, this is why I'm kicking you out was because you did not keep my Sabbath. So fast forward 70 years, the people are back in the land, and there's a group that slowly rises to prominence and power. This group was very devout, very dedicated to the Scriptures, and they never wanted to get kicked out of the Promised Land ever again. So they added rules to the Scripture that would prevent anyone from even getting close to breaking the Sabbath. This group 
as some of you could probably guess, became known as the Pharisees. And one of their rules was that you couldn't carry things around on the Sabbath from one domain to another. And here's the kicker. Anyone who broke the Sabbath faced the death penalty. So this man, just healed, is now encountering the Pharisees and said, I just was able to walk and now they want to kill me. And let's be clear, neither did this man break the Sabbath by carrying his mat, nor did Jesus by healing him on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a beautiful command of God given for man that we may spend one day of the week resting and worshiping him. And it's important to say that Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath here. Jesus was and is sinless. He lived the perfect life you and I never could have lived. And then he died the death on the cross that we deserve. But if there had been an ounce of sin in Jesus when he was on the cross, his death would have saved nobody. Only a sinless man could be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus did not break the Sabbath. He broke the tradition of the Pharisees, which honestly needed to be broken. Because listen, here at Horkin Baptist Church, we believe the Bible is enough for life and godliness. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Not some good works, not even most good works, but for every good work. The Bible is enough. And believing that the Bible is enough doesn't just mean believing that all that the Bible believes, but it means not believing all that the Bible doesn't believe. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, Woe to those who call that is evil good, and woe to those who call what is good evil. The word of God alone determines what is right and good. And it's not a little holier to add to it. It's actually demonic. It's legalism. It's a special kind of pride and arrogance to say God's word is not enough. So let me improve it by adding a couple things. When God shuts his mouth, he knows what he's doing. But back to John 5, these Pharisees don't know that. They don't believe that. And this man is carrying his bed back home with a renewed body and new strength, and he stopped. According to the Pharisees, he's breaking the Sabbath that brings death. This man just spent 38 years, and now he's about to be executed. So what does he say? Look with me to verses 11 through 13. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. When confronted by the Pharisees, what does this man do? He blames Jesus. The man who healed me, he told me to. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Back in the garden, first off, when God confronted Adam with his sin, what did Adam say? The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. And then he, God goes to Eve and, and Eve says, the serpent is the one who tempted me. How quick are we to shift the blame? How quick were they and how quick are we? How quick are we to accuse everyone around us instead of taking any responsibility? And here this man could have said, this man healed me. He may be the Messiah. So I don't care about your man-made tradition. I just obeyed the one who healed me. But he doesn't say any of that. And notice the Pharisees' response in verse 12. They don't care about the miracle that was done. They don't care about this miracle worker and how he may be the long-awaited Messiah. All they care about their traditions. He said, the man who healed me, he told me, 
They don't care about the healing. They said, why did he tell you that? Who was he? These religious rulers care more about the process than they do about the outcome. They're so mystified and so concerned that a man would break their own traditions and their own rules that they have missed out on the sign. They've missed the sign and they've missed the sign giver and who it was pointing to. And if you spend any amount of time in churches, you'll find that it's common for people to care more about the process than about the outcome. I had a professor in seminary who was a huge influence on me. His ministry through most of his life was working with dead and dying churches, churches that were usually on death's door ready to close. And then he would go and work with them and help them turn things around and save it. So he had this reputation for revitalizing dying churches. And there was this one church that asked for his help. So he went on a Sunday morning where he was one of eight in attendance. And after the service, five of those attendees and my professor go down to the church basement and they meet about what can be done to save the church. Church did not have a pastor and they agreed that they needed to hire someone who could make the necessary changes. One man told my professors, well, we don't have any money coming in, but we've done a great job saving up. So we've got enough money to either hire someone full-time for two years or part-time for four years. And my professor says to him, well, you really need to pick one of those two options because I can find you a guy who will work part-time or find you a guy that works full-time, but we need to know which one you need. And the man said, well, that's a decision for the finance committee. And so my professor looks around at the room and the five people sitting here and asks, okay, is anyone here on the finance committee? All five of them raise their hand. Is there anyone here? Or is there anyone who's not here that's also on the finance committee? No, we're all here. And he said, okay, is it okay then that we just speak as the finance committee then? And they said, no, it isn't, because our bylaws say we have to give the church two weeks' notice before the finance committee meets. (laughs) This is a church of seven people with no money on death's door, and they cared more about their rules and their process than the fact that their church was dying, and they were going to lose a foothold in that community, and they'd been there for 100 years. They cared more about their traditions and the will of God for the church. And the conversation went on, but eventually it became clear they were not going to listen to what my professor had to say. So they wished him well. They hired a pastor, fired him eight months later. And it took two years and two of those seven members passing away before they came back again to my professor for help. And the good news is that church is thriving today. They've got about 100 members. They're discipling like crazy. They're reaching out to their community. And and they have... It's just a glorious situation where they've really been able to put the gospel at the forefront. And let me say, having a constitution and bylaws is so important, but it's only important if it's a useful tool that helps us along in our mission. And we constantly need to be asking, what does the Bible say rather than what do the bylaws say? We need to move on from, well, we've always done it this way. This is the way this has always been done. But rather say, what does God want for our church in this community? What does God want for my life? And here the Pharisees completely miss the point. They don't care about what God has done to heal this man. They want to know who healed this man, not so they can follow him, but so they can stone him. But there was a crowd, and interestingly, Jesus disappeared into the crowd. And before this man had even learned his name, thankfully that's not where the story ends. Look with me to verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Even though Jesus had slipped away in the crowd, he wasn't done with this man. But he goes to them and points out that he's still well. The healing that Jesus gave is still in effect. But then he tells the man something very interesting. He tells him to sin no more that nothing 
else may happen. It's not clear what, Jesus, what sin Jesus is referring to. We don't know this man's past or what caused him to be disabled, but the unavoidable implication here is that the bad thing which caused his disability was the sin of this man. Remember last week, I mentioned that in John 9, Jesus and his disciples came across a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. He was born blind so that the works of God might be seen in him. We can never assume that because someone is suffering, it's because of their sin. In fact, there are times, even in the book of Job, Job suffered because he was so righteous. The devil said, what about Job? But don't forget that suffering can also be a direct result of sin. Apostle James wrote, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the pastors of their church to pray over them and treat their sickness. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, then they will be forgiven. So there's this implication of when you're sick, it should be a wake-up call to you. Is this because of my sin? There's a possibility. It's not all sin is a result, or all sickness is a result of sin. Obviously, that's not true. But the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, so we confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. Sin can and does result in physical suffering. And in the case of this man, his suffering was a result of his sin. And so Jesus says to him, I made you well, and my healing is a lasting healing. Now turn away from the sin that marked your life. You have suffered 38 years as a result of your sin, but that is nothing compared to perishing in hell if you do not repent and trust in me. Jesus is the holy God of the universe. He is compassionate and loving and has mercy on sinners, but he is also holy and must judge the sinner. And if they persist in their sin and refuse to trust in him, there is only one outcome. So here Jesus is urging this man to move beyond this physical healing and to embrace spiritual healing. But then in verse 15, we have one of the most heartbreaking verses in this book. Look with me to verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This man made his choice and went back to the Pharisees and reported that Jesus was the one who healed him. Cared more about his own neck than the fact that he had had an encounter with his creator. Jesus' warning went unheeded. And unlike the official from chapter 4, it appears as if this man does not believe in Jesus. This is surprising to me when I read it, but it really shouldn't be. Remember what John told us back in chapter 3? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. At the root of it, this man loved his sin more than he loved the light. And sadly, in this passage, it seems as if he missed out on eternal life because he didn't see Jesus as supremely valuable. My prayer this morning is that we would value Jesus above all things because in John 5, 1 through 15, we found three characteristics of Jesus. He is compassionate, powerful, and holy. So how do we find life? How do we not end up like this man who saw and experienced the power of God but never let it touch his soul? I have two pastoral charges for you, two ways in which we can see Christ as supremely valuable. First pastoral charge. Sin no more. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Simple enough. Is there any sin that you would be willing to die and go to hell for? 
I've actually asked this question many times whenever I've been sharing my faith with someone. I get to the end of the conversation, I ask them this. And I've had many people tell me to my face, yes, there is a sin I'm willing to go to hell for. I'm not going to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I'm not going to stop drinking. I'm not going to stop X, Y, Z. But the words of Jesus are clear here. Sin no more. Now let me be clear. This does not mean you have to stop sinning so you can earn heaven. No, nothing like that. It doesn't mean that you have to achieve perfection before God will love you. What it means is that you have to realize that you are a sinner and to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus. It means you don't make a practice of sinning. John wrote, not just in this gospel, but in one of his letters in 1 John 3, he said, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Do you hear that? Jesus came to take away our sin. But anyone who continues to live in him will not make a practice of sinning. We go to Jesus for grace, but everyone who experiences the grace of God will be changed by it. So what sin have you been clinging to? What sin have you been holding on to? Why have you time and time again refused to fully commit yourself to Christ? Well, here's your opportunity. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. Jesus came and drank the wrath of God on the cross, died as a substitute for sinners like you and I. He shed his blood so that all who would believe would be saved to everlasting life. But not only did he die, he rose from the grave, triumphantly defeating sin, death, and hell. And now what he requires of you and I is to repent and trust alone in his sacrifice. Trust in Jesus and sin no more. Second pastoral charge. Behold the glory of Jesus. Behold the glory of Jesus. In such a short passage, we see so much of Christ's majesty We see his infinite knowledge displayed. We see his heart in action, even for the unbelieving and the ungrateful. We see his divine power. We see his sobering holiness. We see a Jesus who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. So we behold him. How do you strengthen your faith? How do you grow in Christ? By looking to Christ, by beholding his glory. Don't get over the miracle because you're so familiar with it. And you've heard these stories a thousand times. See the power and the glory and the compassion and the holiness of Christ in this passage in your hearts. One of the ways that we do behold Jesus is through Holy Communion. Communion is this beautiful gospel picture of what God has done for us. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us through his broken body and spilled out blood. And so we ask you, if you're not a Christian... Do not take. This is only for Christians. Instead, the invitation for you is to take Jesus himself. That use this time to pray and receive Christ. To put your full faith and trust in him. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, 
If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.